From Kurtco Media. There's no place like Hollywood. Welcome to another special episode of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. I'm Jenny Curtis, and before we jump in with our guest, I want to introduce my amazing guest co-host, Nick Walker. Hello, everybody. What's going on? Thank you for joining us, Nick. Honored to be here. Nick is currently leading the Broadway cast of Ain't Too Proud after three years in Hamilton, both on Broadway and in touring companies. And forgive me, but I have to ask. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends who's asking. (laughs) So there's this amazing thing that happens with this show where, you know, after you do a show on Broadway or in theater, as I'm sure anybody's done theater has done, you go out, you sign at the stage door. There's always one kid who has to ask it, and it makes me so happy. I mean, it's just the best show and the best role. Lynn jokes that Hamilton is going to go on his tombstone. Honestly, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I am so honored to be a part of that legacy and to have started one of the companies and done that show. It's been a really, really awesome ride. Also, you co-host your own podcasts, The Chaos Twins and Little Justice. What are those? Chaos Twins is my arts and activism podcast. I was doing Instagram Lives this summer, 2020, when you know so many things were popping off and just talking about things. And then my friend Sasha from Hamilton joined me. And then Broadway World was like, hey, we see you're doing this. Do you just want to do this like on our channel? And we were like, yeah, sure. So that became a thing. And then <laughs> Little Justice, which you will be on very soon, and I'm so excited about that, is our movie review podcast. Me and my best friend Alex just being bums and talking about movies and trying to pretend like we know things we don't, you know? I also noticed, so you are a playwright yourself. What is the Bloody Boston Trilogy? There are the series of plays that I have had in development. I'd actually say since I graduated college, when I was a kid, I was obsessed with like Mark Twain and Michael Crichton, even though I did not understand one of his books in third grade. But writing was just something that I I really just loved. I loved telling my own stories. And especially speaking quite honestly, as a young Black kid growing up in Boston, there wasn't a lot of opportunities for me to see myself on stage or on screen. You know, not just a Black person, but a Black nerd, a Black comic book reader, a Black, you know, all these things that now we're inundated with. So it came out of that. And the Bloody Boston trilogy was three very different plays, one musical, one play with music and one play that are all interconnected in the same Boston universe, but really are more about me reconciling with my childhood growing up as a black kid in Boston. They're not directly about that. They all kind of delve into genres. So I'd say the first play chronologically in the trilogy is called Uncle Jackie. And it's kind of this thriller about police brutality. <laughs> if you can imagine that, it's people who shouldn't be in a room together, stuck in a room together and shake the room up story. There is This Ends Tonight, which is kind of a Western. And then there's Whiskey Land, which is Boston in the last 24 hours of existence. So you're partying with a bunch of crazy drunk Bostonians on this wild night. It was the kind of thing that like once I finished at least the first drafts of all three of these, I just like put them down and was like, thank the Lord, I'm not touching Boston again. (laughs) And I know for anybody who writes, you put yourself out there and you know that Ernest Hemingway saying you bleed on the page. There were also just great tools for me to learn how to write. You know, I went to school as a Shakespeare major and theater major, and I never took any writing classes. I just learned by reading scripts and watching people that I liked. I look back at those three plays and I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how I cut my teeth. And now I'm writing screenplays, I'm writing pilots, but those three were the ones that really taught me how to write for myself. So before we jump in with our guest, what do our listeners need to know about you as an artist? Ooh, let's talk about like really easy questions. Um, (laughs) Terribly, terribly deep and complex. I think a lot of my friends would describe me as kind of a Han Solo type. 
I love to pretend that I'm edgy and pushing boundaries, but really I'm a teddy bear. So my art tends to be very uncomfortable and very intense, but I'm writing it because that's the work that I had to get through to get to a place of openness and vulnerability. So I think if there was one way to define my art, it would be saying you got to go through the dark before you get to the light. That's probably the kind of theme with everything I've ever written. And I'd say that about my performance too. You know, every character that I've played on stage, I love contradiction and I love complexity. I love questions that are left unanswered. So I would hope that I've tried to, especially with Burr, I've always tried to present the case of a person who maybe you don't like, but you at least understand. Okay, so I'm really excited to introduce today's guest. We are starting the Christmas season very strong with playwright, screenwriter, director, producer, David E. Talbert, whose work we've seen in First Sunday, Almost Christmas, El Camino Christmas, Baggage Claim, and this spectacular new film, Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey, which is now on Netflix. David, thank you so much for joining us. Yo, what's up? I'm Jenny, and today co-hosting is Nick. Oh, man. Is, is he going to sing? Is he going to sing his part of the interview? Listen, I'm just here to bask in your greatness. I mean, I won't stop anyone from singing if that's the <laughs> question. <laughs> I wouldn't stop it either. I just want to start by saying... I love Jingle Jangle. We were just talking about it. Both of us have watched it multiple times. What a joy. I try to pay attention when I'm watching a new movie or reading a new script. I try to pay attention to the first words that you write the scripts or the movie because often the first line of a movie, the first scene of a movie can tell you so much about, like, I'm a huge nerd, by the way, but often a good writer can tell you exactly what your movie is just in the first three, four lines of dialogue. And the first word spoken in your movie is, wow. And it's crazy because that joy of just like imagination and creation carries you throughout the entire film. That is no easy feat to sustain, man. So congratulations. Thank you so much. You say the film has been 20 years in the making. So you started writing it as a theater piece back in the 90s. Is that correct? Yeah, I was going to do it as a touring theater for about 10, 15 years, touring off-Broadway, non-union theater across the country. I call it soul theater, urban circuit and all that. So I wanted to do something on Broadway. Every time we went to the Beacon, we were on Broadway. We were 78th in Broadway. So I said, I want to to go down a little bit and get some of this love. (laughs) So I wanted to do it as a Broadway musical, but I couldn't get the songs right. No one was really feeling me doing a Broadway musical. They were like, that's your lane and this is our lane. And then when my son was born and I started seeing the world through his eyes, I started showing him my favorite films, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and Willy Wonka and all those. And he wasn't that into them like I was into them because on his walls, Miles Morales and Black Panther. So he's looking at these lily white movies. So I mean, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, you can't get more. And I'm up there singing, Pop, Hope, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, we love you. And he's looking at me as, who is this big black white man <laughs> singing these songs? And so I realized that he wanted to see someone on screen and look like him. And that's why I said, okay, it's time to do this. As And my wife said, maybe let's do it as a film instead of a play. And that's when it all took off. So what does he think of it? Oh, my God. Don't make me cry on here. When he sees people flying that look like him, and when he sees just this wonder and this magic, and across the eyes of the robot, it says Elias 260. That's my son's name, Elias. And my great-grandmother, who is most magical she was and still is in my life, her dress was 260 Kentucky Avenue. So it's full circle moment for me connecting the magic of these two, this baby boy and my great grandmother. 
And so when he sees it on his eyes, like, Daddy, that's my name. I'm like, that's right. And it'll be there for all of eternity for the world. And it's a beautiful thing. That reverberates not just with your son, but with all of us who grew up without these kind of movies for us. From the opening number, we are seeing a world that we have never been allowed to express on screen, where it's not about our blackness through a white gaze. It's just black joy. It's just black holiday joy. I literally sat there and I have the text with my wife and I was like, yo, if this had come out when I was a kid, like it would be game over. Has that kind of washed over you yet that you've done something here, man? It was intentional in its representation, but like the movies I mentioned, Willy Wonka, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Mary Poppins. When I was little, nobody said, let's go sit down and watch a white movie. We said, let's watch a movie. Let's watch a great movie that happens to have different people that look like us in it, but it was wonder, it was magic, and it heightened my imagination. And so, yes, it was intentional for me to have people that look like my son, but I wanted to lead with heart and humanity and what connects us all, and that we all have a seat at this table of wonder, and we connect ourselves to the universal language, which is song. And so we can all celebrate all cultures around the world. I talk to people from Brazil and Ireland and France and Italy and South Africa and Ghana and Atlanta and Detroit. And everybody is connected with the heart and the humanity and the fact that we're inviting people to the table to play with this wonder that we haven't seen before. That just makes it that much more wonderful. It's so relatable on every level, but you're fostering not only a sense of imagination, but it's imagination through science and math and all of these exciting things that like, it's okay to be smart. And we love that and celebrate that. And I, yeah, I cried a lot during the movie. The movie that inspired that, there were two of them. And that was A Beautiful Mind. When he was riding up in the, you saw all that and hidden figures. Ted Melfi is one of my dudes. That's like my brother. And that inspired his whole idea of STEM. You know, I wanted to show that we're innovators and intellectuals and mathematicians and scientists. We can fly, we can write formulas in the sky. The square root of impossible, the second derivative of sensational, the circumference of spectacular. You know, I mean, we can come up with this stuff too. So it was exciting and fun for me. The songs, you were saying that you were having a hard time crafting, but these songs are gorgeous. And I mean, in true musical theater form, I think one of my issues always with a lot of musical theater is when you put a song in there because it's time for the song. You know, it's nothing wrong with that, but because the form starts in vaudeville and it's presentational, now it's time for this song rather than songs that actually move plot forward. When Geronicus starts singing his very first song, I knew you had something because it came from a place. It was, this thing has arrived and now life will be better. And every song did that. So one of the questions I had was, in crafting these songs with these amazing writers, including John Legend, was there a lot of discussion about how these songs get you from point A to point B? Did you kind of just send them off and let them go? Like, what was that discussion? A lot of plays I did were musical theater. And so the songs are an extension of the dialogue or extension of the moment. But I'm not, not a fan of people breaking out and talking to me as they start to sing. <laughs> I'm just not a fan of that. It kind of jars me a bit like, oh, now you sing. You know, that's more traditional. But what Disney was able to do so well with Frozen and then what Wicked was able to do, it's a different form of music. And, you know, everybody doesn't have to start talking and singing dialogue. And that's kind of a little bit older. So I wanted to stay in there in that vein, but I wanted to celebrate what was soulful and celebrational about our music. Our music supervisor, Julian Michaels, introduced me to Phil Lawrence, and Phil is a force of nature. He's the nuttiest dude you ever want to meet, but he wrote all the Bruno Mars songs with Bruno. 
So I knew he had this big international sensibility that everyone sings along on four corners of the planet sings along the Bruno Mars songs. And then John Legend is the same thing. They're just great songs that happen to have a soulful celebrational bottom to them, but they're just great songs. So I said, if we could bring these two together and I could find someone that would give an orchestral bottom to it, because I love orchestral bottoms of the great John Devney, we brought him in. And so even in the snowball scene, when they're dancing and you have traditional African Bisa Gadi from Ghana, I said, definitely slap some orchestration up under that thing. And so then you've got the best of both worlds in his source. Did they work together on the songs or did they divvy them up? Phil wrote all the songs, except for Make It Work. John looked over it, but I came to John, and you all from theater, that I said, I need an 11 o'clock hour song, and I need something to wake us up and slap us in the face and remind us, oh, snap, oh, wait a second now. I flew from London to hook up with John in his house, and he sat down at the piano, and he came up with Make It Work. And then I took it back to London, and I said, let's heighten the percussion, and let's make it like it's a soulful, a spiritual, like the ancestors are crying from the ground. And then the choreographer, Ashley Wallen, he was doing this wonderful traditional dance in the town square. And I said, Ash, that's wonderful. But I said, I need you to go online and look at Howard University homecoming, and I need you to look at step shows. You look at the Omega Sci-Fi's and the Kappa Alpha size, and the way that they do this traditional stepping dance, which comes from Africa, incorporate that in the town square. And then it just soared. So that's kind of the approach to it all. Once again, you know, I promise I will stop singing your praises. <laughs> oh, no, don't stop. Oh, no, 22 years. Please. I'll give you the key. Do it in A flat, B flat, C flat. Please. No, but look, you got your two characters leading that song, Jessica Geronicus, right? And I think even there, you're breaking the form because an 11 o'clock number, that is your one character generally. That is your alphabet. Hamilton, Hurricane is kind of his 11 o'clock number, really. That is the one person having the moment in the fourth act where they're like, something needs to change something needs to happen. Yours is the community. Mm -hmm. Your 11 o'clock number is this group coming together to make something happen. Anika, I said, you sang through the chaos and all around you folks are letting you have it. You got the anvil man hitting the shit out of that thing and you got the people dancing. And I said, and you just see the calm going through this storm here. And then it just, you just want to just get up and just like, okay, stop it now. (laughs) Anika and Ford tore that song up. They were phenomenal. Oh, my God. Nick knows so much more than I do in the technique. I just sit there with my mouth open because I just love what's happening. I love musicals. I would have no idea what was technical or not. But it did exactly that, where, like, you were kind of winding down into this calmer area and suddenly your mouth is on the floor and, oh, we're all awake. Even that's amazing, right? I mean, when something can be appreciated for both its technical aspects and just how it makes you feel, that's when you know you got something. Jurassic Park, which is my favorite movie of all time, a technically brilliant movie, also a movie that has a strong emotional core, right? You can look at it from both those angles, and I think that's what's done here. Hi, I'm Robert Ross, host of Cars That Matter. You might be wondering what makes a car matter, and I have a feeling you already know the answer. Some cars have changed history. Some you can hear a mile away. Some have lines that make your heart skip a beat. If a car has ever made you look twice, then I think you know the ones that matter. Join me as I speak with designers, collectors, and market experts about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. Cars That Matter, wherever you get your podcasts. So 
So you started to talk about the cast a little bit. You have a phenomenal cast of both theater actors, film actors, all of these amazingly talented people. I'd love to talk about the casting process, how you found everyone. Well, the first one that was on the wall was Felicia Rashad's grandmother. And we hadn't even reached out. We hadn't talked to anything. But my wife came in, who's a producer, and she put up the picture of Felicia. This is the grandmother. And of course, Felicia Rashad. I mean, I've seen her on Broadway. And I tell us all the time at Raising the Sun, the one that Puffy did with her. She came in at the very end of that when they were supposed to leave and she came back in and took this pot, this one plant, and she looked around that place and the power that came out of that woman, I leaped up and gave her a standing ovation. So I wanted to have for this film that is at its core stage theatrical. I wanted to have people that are at the top of the food chain on stage. So I got Anika, we got Felicia Rashad, the queen, and uh, Miss Johnson, Lady Plays Miss Johnson, is a British stage actress. And of course, Hugh Bonneville and Forrest has been on the stage. So for me, she was up there first, but then Jeronica's Jangle is his film. So I have been knowing Forrest for about almost 20 years. We've been trying to figure out what to do. And when this came around, I knew that he had been trained vocally and I flew into New York to sit with him at his favorite vegan spot. So we're eating and I don't know what the hell to order. And I keep trying to order wings. I could the waitress said, do you have more wings? Of course, it's a, it's a vegan place. I did. You know, serve me. I'm like, oh, 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 okay. Okay. You got any sliders? You got any? <laughs> he says, I did, but it's vegan. They don't serve. Yeah. I'm like, well, then what do we eat, dude? So he just eat up. He said, I'll order for you. He's ordered all this shit. And in the middle of ordering, he stopped and he says, so you want me to be in your movie? And I told him that I needed him to be in my movie because I needed someone that would ground this character so it wouldn't be a caricature. He would bring humanity because it's very delicate. This could easily be a cartoon character, but I needed someone who would give it humanity. I told him that I needed someone not only that I would respect in front of the camera, but I needed a big brother behind the camera because I knew this big undertaking was something I hadn't done in the visual effects and big musicals and period pieces and costumes. I hadn't done this before. And I needed number one on the call sheet to be somebody that had my back. And that brother had my back every step of the way. He would come in every morning because we shot in London. He'd say, good morning, governor. You know, you know? <laughs> and so he was brilliant, brilliant, brilliant man. But more importantly, he was a brother to me on that set and gave me the latitude to direct him. And he gave me the freedom to tweak and massage and adjust. And he went with it. He bought into it and he crushed it. And then we just continued to build out the cast with the supporting characters around him. Madeline Mills, who plays Journey, this is her first film, and she was on Broadway. She's freaking phenomenal. Oh, my God. Was film easy for her or was it a challenge? She's a grown up in a little girl's body. I was not directing her like, look, now this is what you do. This is what you do. No, I was telling her about nuance and backstory and beats and objectives and subtext. Like I would talk to Forrest and then she would stare at me. And she, I said, obviously you got this. And we had a relationship that was very in tune with each other because she's a leading lady in the film. She had to be grounded too, because the worst thing you can ever do to a human being is to make them endure a child actor through two hours. <laughs> you just want to blow your brains out. You know, you forgive them because they are a child, but I wanted people to not be taken out of the movie watching a child fumble through it. I mean, same way Macaulay Culkin you loved and Shirley Temple you loved and Judy Garland you loved and Stephanie Mills when she was on Broadway playing Dorothy and the Wiz. These people inhabited the role. And so that's what she did. She stole the role, stole my heart. You know, forget about her career. It's out of here. Forget about it. 
when you're singing on stage, the muscles that you use are very, very different. When a camera is this close up to your face, and it's stuff that you can do on stage, but it's stuff that might only read to your scene partner. Only you gotta to, go here, right? You got to go, here. and that's what I thought was just like, oh yeah, you're done. Like your career's that's it. Because like you put it right here, and she's like, yep. And Forrest understood that when he sung, he was the only one that filmed it. Sung two songs live over and over. His first song was live, and then the makeup scene with his daughter was live. We were supposed to go to the pre-record in a musical of course you sing in pre-record and uh, we were supposed to go to pre-record I told my DP Remy I said I'm not going to yell cut right before he sings he said does he know that we're going to keep recording I'm like no but he's Forrest Whitaker he'll keep it moving and so Journey ran out of the workshop and I had the piano player hit that chord and Forrest turned around and he started singing over and over and what you see in the film is his take that's his first take it was all live it was no pre-record he sang all of that live didn't miss a beat or anything. Did it throw him afterwards? Well, afterwards, when I yelled cut, there was about 10 seconds of silence. Nobody said anything. And I just whispered cut. And then everyone gave him an ovation for about a minute. And it was one of the most amazing things I had seen. Who does that on set of a film? But everyone there knew that we had experienced something magical, otherworldly. There have been so many actors who have done these movie musicals at this point, but it is such a stark difference when you see somebody who truly knows how to act a song. That's it. You treat it like Shakespeare. You treat it like heightened text, and you dig in there, and you say, what is the song about? What is my character feeling? What do they want? And you achieve it. And so many moments that he had. And the other person I got to give it up to is Key Michael Key. Back to So a huge fan of his. I saw him live when he did Hamlet at the Public. I think you guys use Liz Kaplan for him. That's my voice teacher on Ain't Too Proud. Oh, wow. She is the gold standard. Because I was like, okay, so if you got Liz Kaplan working with him, let's see what kind of song. That song is hard. And they wanted to change the key. Harvey Mason said, we're going to lower the key because he's more comfortable than that. I said, Harvey, we ain't lowering no key. I said, you're going to take the excitement of the song. He said, well, he wants it to be lowered. I said, well, let him know. I have full confidence that he'll be able to hit those notes. So we came in there and he wore it out. He wore that song out. Yes, he did. I always love a villain that you can understand. I love that arc, man. He was wonderful in that. And, and I got that moment from the Blues Brothers. You know, the first one with James Brown in there. I said, we got to go get that scene in Blues Brothers. I said, we got it. That's our bar. James Brown and that scene in there were just so upbeat and uplifting. So I said, I want to mix that with the boldness of Moulin Rouge and what they were able to do with those colors and make it special. How much of the film was discovery on set that surprised you and how much had you pictured and it turned out exactly how you wanted? A lot of it was discovery. I think all the production designer and costume designer and cinematographer, choreographer, we all became kids on set because this was our chance to play. We were in London, we were on a stage, we were given all the resources and just, okay, so now in your perfect world, if you had a chance to do anything you wanted to do, what would you do? It was grown men and women that were kids again on set. And you see all the production design and everything that goes into it looks that way. My wife, who's a producer of the film, Aesthetics is her thing. She said to the costume designer, Michael Wilkinson, at the beginning, he had these beautiful Victorian patterns. He said, well, this is 1800s and these are black people in 1800s. That means they either defected from U.S. or they are first or second generation from Africa. So we need to mix African patterns with Victorian. So Michael flew to Ghana and Nigeria and got patterns. So the vibrancy that you see is Victorian mixed with authentic African patterns and created a thing called Afro-Victorian. And it just pops on the screen. It does. Yeah. It's 
unbelievably beautiful. And the detail is mind-blowing. I mean, down to the three prongs on Journey's bow tie that you would never see and the buttons and metal in her hair. Journey was, uh, in the script, it says she's an original for sure. And that she had the pogs and the blue band in her hair. And we were trying to figure out what that was. And then Michael Wilkinson stitched together that thing we saw. We're like, okay, forget about it. And then the natural hair with the three puffs and everything my wife came up with. And then here, here we go. Was the Afro-Victorian kind of your entree into the steampunk of it all? Or did that just come naturally because of the fact that you're inventors? You know what I mean? Hugo was really started to pique my interest in there. And when I was watching that, I'm like, wow, this is wonderful. So that really was a film that started to pull me into this whole steampunk of it all, which I think is fascinating. We've never seen us in that world. Again, it's just one of those things that I'm trying not to get too personal here, but you have to understand growing up when you like those things and everyone's telling you you're not supposed to like those things because those things aren't for you. You sit there and you question yourself and you question your worth and you question all these things. Then 20 years later, you get a movie like this. And it just affirms in you that you actually were exactly where you're supposed to be. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I am so happy that I'm alive in an age where these kind of messages are being sent out to our kids. There's one thing that I have to ask you about. At the end of Journey's song, you have her in front of the clock tower. You have her with her arms spread. Now, again, I'm a huge nerd and I'm probably looking too deep into this, but I also would not be surprised. Vitruvian Man? No, no. But you got to get me to that. So Vitruvian man, Leonardo da Vinci, right, was his drawing of the ideal man. And it's a man in a circle with a square. It's literally the design that you have on that cogs behind her. Okay. Maybe it was just subliminal. Maybe it's just my mind looking too deeply into it. But what I loved about it was like you literally took the Vitruvian man pose and put it in the body of a black girl. Well, you know, for me... When I see films like Let It Go, and I love that. Again, I'm the biggest, blackest, whitest man you'll ever be. I just love all the wonder, and I loved in Wicked when Elphaba went up at the end of the first. I'm not like, forget about it, forget about it. But we've never seen us. When she was on the inside of that shop, the whole song. And when we got there, I said, Ashley, this is wonderful, but it's not grand enough. It's not frozen enough. He said, well, that was animation day. You can go anywhere in animation. I said, well, where can we go that would be interesting? And he says, well, there's nowhere around it. So we go outside. I'm like, I point there. He's like, on the rooftop? And then Madeline's mama said, wait a second. You ain't putting my daughter up on the rooftop. (laughs) The special effects person came over there and said, well, Dave, we could do that. And she's like, no, we can't do that. <laughs> I said, Jamie, that's Madeline. I said, Jamie, let me figure it out if it could be safe. And then I would try to sell it to you. So he said, we put her on harnesses. And I said, Jamie, she's going to be in a harness. There's no way she can fall. And she said, would you let Elias go up in there? And I said, I'd let Elias go up in there if he had those harnesses on there. And there's no way he could fall. He would have fun. And I said, it'll be iconic. And she said she would give me the side eye, you know, like side eye. And we did that choreography out on that rooftop 30 minutes before she did it. Wow. She was literally learning that choreography as they were moving the cameras outside and everything. Because I just said, we need a frozen moment. We need an iconic moment where she's on top of the world. And maybe it's surreal. Maybe it's in her mind. It's whatever. But we need to show so that when she spins around there on the interior and then she goes in, so positive. She's like, okay, okay, stop it, stop it. And so we're excited about that. 
How did the choreography work for the rest of it? Did you have a lot of rehearsal time? How did it all get figured out? Because it's very intricate. Oh, that's Ashley and Jenny Griffin, Ashley Wallen, who did The Greatest Showman. He did the choreography for that. And I love that choreography in that film. And so I hired him and Jenny Griffin is kind of the secret sauce. She's a little Italian woman who is steeped in hip hop. I mean, she does all hip-hop choreography for a lot of the artists in the States. And so they're kind of combined to give it some swag to it, you know, to give it its classical movement, but give it something a little bit extra. And Ashley would record all the choreography on his iPhone and he would cut it together. And so in rehearsals, he was like, Dave, this is what I'm thinking would be great angles, great cuts and all that stuff. So I use a lot of what he cut together when Remy, my cinematographer, said, so what do you think? I would just go, this is what I think. <laughs> you know? He says, how close do you want to be to that? I'm like, I wanted to be that. <laughs> you know, so a lot of that is Ashley Wallen and Jenny Griffin. Ricky Martin's character is an animated doll. How does choreography work when you're working with animation? On set, it was just a stick with a tennis ball for eye lines and everything and for camera movement. And then we got back, Ricky came in in a suit with, you know, all the stuff on it and started dancing. And that's what we animated to him. Even with the singing, back to that for a second, the thing about pre-record is that sometimes it hinders more than it helps, right? Because you have to lock in your performance in the studio. Whatever you sang on that, that's what you're doing. You were able to maintain such a naturalism to everybody's performance with that. You know, being ignorant to certain things helps you a lot. I didn't know the rules, therefore I could break the rules. You're supposed to lock this in, but I didn't know you were supposed to lock it in. So I'm like, well, I didn't know you were supposed to lock it in. That can't be what it is. That looks stiff. And they're like, well, that means we have to animate to Ricky Martin. I'm like, okay, well, hey, Ricky, can you come in today? And he was like, yeah. And so I got away with a lot because I just didn't know any better. And that's where it could be organic and feel more natural and not staged. Yeah, it really works, man. It was one of the things that I thought was just really vibrant about the movie was you can tell when people are out there committed to these choices that they made three, four months ago, uh, <laughs> as opposed to what they're feeling in the moment. But what happened, though, was the first song was supposed to be the song called Everything's Changing. And a week before we were going to shoot, I called Phil up and I said, Phil, I think we need to do something to this song. It's not quite working. So you want me to change the rhythm of the beats? I said, no, I want you to change the whole song. And he says, the whole song? I'm like, yeah, we're flying you in here tomorrow to London and we were going to Air Studios. And this day came in a week before we started shooting. Wow. It was a whole new song. So when you say people committed something three months ago, they only committed it to it three days before. And Not the Only One came in a week before. So it was a work in progress and I was always fine tuning these things and I was trying to figure it out. So a lot of these things came in right before we shot. Possible was recorded a week before we started shooting. It's how we bake the cake. And I think I'll do this this way, you know, going forward. How long was the shoot? 70 days. Did you have to reshoot a lot if you were kind of figuring it out as you went along? We did no reshoots for the film. We were very fortunate, but the crew there was unbelievable. But the shoot was supposed to be like 50 days. And then I kept adding stuff into it. Like the wind tunnel wasn't even in the script, but I got there and I'm like, we need some Indiana Jones up in here. <laughs> you know, We need some action adventure. We need some Goonies. We need some Steven Spielberg stuff in here. We need this wind tunnel. So that added five more days to the shoot. And that's when we came with wind tunnel scene.
A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm magic read extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my spine. You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. Her fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being it's questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies. Wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the ones that The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in front of you. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time. From the beginning idea back when it was a play to now, how much did the story change or what was it initially when it was a piece of theater? It was always Geronicus and Journey and Miss Johnston and Gustafson and Buddy 3000. Those were the ones. But then as a film, you just have to evolve it even more. But I never knew what the second act or third act was. In it. I only had the first act. And it was solid. If a play could only be one act, I'd win every award <laughs> imaginable. But I could never figure out where these people would go and what would happen and all that. And I think I needed the film to really allow me to open up my mind to build on everything. We did two workshops in London with British actors to really workshop and it evolved a lot. Thank God for those workshops. And now you are talking about taking it to stage? Always going to the stage. Yee! I think I got a brother that may just be able to get up in there. Listen, bro. I vote yes. Yeah, we're gearing up now for it to be a perennial. We're trying to see this where we're launching, but it's absolutely going to the stage and it'll be there forever and ever. Amen. As a perennial. Let me ask you this, because you've gone on this writer's journey that so many writers get to have where your idea in one medium, you were stuck on it, you blew it up into another medium, and now things are coming together. In the transfer back to stage, now that you do have an understanding of where this second act leads, how these characters get to the end of their journey, what do you think, obviously you're in process, you're doing your thing, but what do you think might have to be changed? What do you think might have to be tweaked to get it back to stage? I think like when they did The Lion King, when I saw that thing on Broadway, I'm like, what in the world is Julie Tamar? What was she smoking when she came <laughs> up with this? Because it was so next level. So I think the stage lends itself. I mean, can you imagine them flying through the audience and a Buddy 3000 flying and scrims with riding in the sky? Can you imagine those big dance Magic Man G on stage and make it work on the stage? You blow the roof off the theater with those songs. So I think it lends itself to it beautifully. It truly is going to be incredible because, you know, one of the greatest, and this kind of in some ways reminds me of Jingle Jangle, but one of, I think, the greatest missed opportunities was not finding a way to put Idlewild on stage. Idlewild was masterful. Yeah, it's already there. That movie was ahead of its time. They're brilliant. And Outkast and Andre and Big Boy and Brian Barber, who was the director. I mean, the cinematography and the inventiveness and that. I still don't know how he did some of that stuff. But people couldn't wrap their minds around what it was. But it was a stage production that they filmed. And again, just with an infectious beat, I mean, even in the Broadway musicals we have right now, something that can go from literally like New Orleans jazz to like Ghana beats, we don't have that. We also have not had a story that can hold all of that in context. 
yours is going to be that story, man. I'm going to buy a ticket right now. <laughs> oh, you may not have to buy a ticket. You may be able to give somebody a comp ticket because you're in it. Let's go. I'll buy a ticket right now. How about that? There you go. We got you. We got you. I do want to talk about you accidentally kind of fell into being the Christmas movie guy because you never intended it, but all of your movies seem to gravitate toward the holidays. How did that happen? It was funny because Almost Christmas was called a Myers Thanksgiving. That's the script that I wrote. And then Universal asked, we love the script. Could we make it Christmas? I'm like, okay, cool. So it changed to Almost Christmas. And then Ted Melfi wrote El Camino, asked me to direct it for him. Then he changed to El Camino Christmas. (laughs) And then this one was called The Invention of Geronica's Jangle. And there was a song in there that I'd written called Jingle Jangle. Everybody was like, well, I like that title better. So we went with that. And then once we shot it, Netflix said, well, we'll change it to Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey. <laughs> so there you have it. I'm Black Santa. But I love it. You know? <laughs> I mean, the holidays are a great time to tell stories. Also, though, because I heard you in an interview talking about how it was a trilogy of Christmas films. But I do want to point out baggage claim takes place during Thanksgiving. You outed me. Damn. Damn. (laughs) She said I got those deep cuts. The holidays, I remember growing up, walking from church. My whole family pastors and preachers. I remember we were walking from church in D.C. And it was the holidays. And at this bus stop, there was this raggedy kind of transistor radio. And they were pumping. It's the most wonderful time of the year was Johnny Mass's version. And I remember there was a homeless lady that was sitting in there trying to stay warm. And I remember just as a kid, just looking at her. But the thought that came to me is that you're playing it's the most wonderful time of the year. And here's a woman who's homeless trying to stay warm. And so that idea of, for most people, the holidays, they play all this happy music and you just want to sometimes throw a shoe at the speaker because it's not as happy as this music is because you're either missing uh, family members that aren't there anymore or relationships. And it's a time of year where you really get a chance to think about things. And uh, those things aren't always great. So the holidays, for me, that backdrop is pushing past the pain and trying to get to the joy. And whatever that journey is, it just seems when you put the backdrop of the holidays, there. It just heightens it. When Geronicus is at his low and the banker leaves and tells him he's got to get this invention and he's sitting there, you hear people out singing cheerful songs, talking about Merry Christmas and his world is crumbling. And I just thought that that contrast was always interesting. So, you know, me and my wife, our Christmases and holidays are usually spent like just sitting in getting Chinese food and watching movies. You're Jewish. <laughs> oh no man no but we, we both have a lot of jewish friends and that's that's exactly yeah. uh, that's all chinese food that's <laughs> that's exactly right it's just true how the holidays just up the stakes everything has so much more emotional weight on this day when you are supposed to be joyful but there's always something that's missing or that's you know just holding you back here's my question to you though kind of on this topic One of the things that's clear to me is that, like you just explained, this came from Elias is your son's name. You have this memory of the holidays. This is a personal story to you. With writers, I think so often are always looking for these stories outside of ourselves. Can you speak a little bit to the power that you have found writing not what you know, but who you are? I am Jeronicus Jangle. You know, anyone who's been in a business or just in life for some period of time, you have these ideas, these thoughts, these dreams, these inventions, and you believe they'll work, but then over time, through life is beaten out of you. 
or you just start doubting yourself and people start doubting you and then you say, oh, well, it just doesn't work. And so for me, the robot Buddy 3000 was up in Dronica's attic for 30 years. It always worked. But this script has been in my attic of my hard drive for 22 years. And so when my son was born, yes, in theory, I'm like, I had this dream, but I couldn't get it to work. But when my son was born and I looked at him, it gave me the courage again, because I saw life through the eyes of a child, you know, through an imagination, everything was possible. And I started to find the courage to him. And when I showed him the Buddy 3000, the first drawing of it, he was four. I said, what do you think, Lies? He says, oh, daddy, I love it. What can a robot do? And I said, well, you know, he can walk and he can talk. And he says, that's good. He said, can he fly? And I hadn't thought about it. But he wasn't supposed to fly. And I said, yeah, he can fly. He just smiled. And he looked at me and said, daddy, can I fly? Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at my son, looking at me, asking me, can he fly? And um, took a beat. I hadn't thought about that either. I looked at him. I said, yeah, buddy, you can fly too. And he just lit up. And that is the spirit of what this film is. Every parent wants, or every person wants to believe that they can be wonderful and magical and all that. And now with this film, little black boys, little black girls, people of color all around the world can see, oh, I'm magical too. And that's everything. My son was like Journey was to Geronicus. And here we are now, and I'm not looking back ever again. I'm so happy for you, man. Appreciate you. This is going to be a kind of a flip back to the beginning, but I did want to talk about Mrs. Johnston's backup dancers because I think they're one of my favorite things in the movie. What sparked that idea? Phil Lawrence, who wrote that song, he wrote a couple of oohs, ahs, backgrounds. So Phil, no, have them answer her and make them more of a character, the background of character. So we were in London and he came with the line, sitting in the dark all day by yourself. And I was falling out. I said, Phil, that shit is funny. And then I looked at him, I said, Phil, Wait a second. Now the personality is too much. I said, we got to have these background dancers in there. And and it wasn't even in the script. And Phil's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, man, you got to be, because he is, Phil Lawrence is the middle one of those dancers. That's Phil Lawrence with the glasses. No kidding. So I said, Phil, you got to be in there. And two of the actors that were in the workshop, British actors, singers, who I met when I went to see Dreamgirls in London, they were two of the stars in there. I said, you all got to be in there. And growing up, the pips, that's what we called them all the time. It was Glass Night and the Pips. But growing up, grown men dancing and choreography was everything. The dramatics, the spinners, <laughs> the temptation, the four tops, the Jackson 5, new edition. And we don't get a chance to see grown men dressed to the nine, letting you have it. When I told Ashley he was doing these dances, I said, no, go look at the pips. Go look at the temptations. That's what I want this to look like. And they just stole the show. Once they came in, forget about it. That's all you want to see of those guys. Let me ask you, before the shutdown, were you able to come see Ain't Too Proud? You know Linda Stewart? Yeah. Okay, so Linda's been like my sister, and I helped get her into the Broadway. She was my publicist for all my plays. Yeah. Linda said, I think John and Mike were a part of Ain't Too Proud, John Lynch and Mike Jackson. So I was supposed to see it here in L.A. before it went to Broadway. And then I started scouting. I was going to try to catch it when I came in to do the audition for Madeline, so I've never seen it. All I've heard is it's everything. Well, that's my show now. I play Otis in that show now. Oh, man. I'm not even joking. When this is all lifted, you got some tickets on me, man. It's a done deal. My role, like, it's basically a three-hour monologue, but then I also have to dance. I can't dance for crap. 
And I've, I've had to learn for this. You know, we were just in the studio yesterday getting ready for the Christmas tree lighting. The feeling of being a grown black man with four other dudes just hit me. It's everything. It is magnetic. I feel so blessed to have these brothers. Like, And they're all people that I came up with. You got to come see it, dude. Yeah, when I was in college, my friends and I, we would act like we were the dramatics and we were saying, I'm going to go outside in the rain. So I'm going to go outside yeah, yeah. You know, in the rain. And we would do all that. None of us could dance, but just the idea of choreography, you know, is wonderful. Everyone loves those tips. Everyone loves those. This final question is my favorite question to ask. What does it mean to you to have a life in storytelling? It's all I know. I grew up in a storefront holiness church in Washington, D.C. My great-grandmother, Pastor Annie Mae Woods, who was my heart. But as a young kid, I watched her stories, her words, the word of God. I watched alcoholics come in, addicts come in one way and leave out another way. I watched words touch people, move people, change people's lives in some ways. Through stories, through words. I'm not religious at all, but I do understand the power of words. Words are powerful with the right intention behind them. And they can touch and move people in ways because I've experienced it. Of course, African culture griots as a form of storytelling, sitting down, fireside, or a group of people, and you tell a story. And I think that's just a tradition of who we are. And I didn't know that this is who I was going to be, but it's in my DNA and it's who I am. Tracy Morgan, when we did First Sunday, he told me what his idea of success was. And he said, David, success is waking up in the morning and having something to look forward to. Yeah. It's the simplest thing. And and so when I wake up in the morning, I look forward to telling stories. And um, if I'm remunerated, yes. (laughs) I am blessed, though, and given everything I need to have because I honor what this gift is, what this intention is, and what we're putting out into the world. Jingle Jangle, A Christmas Journey is on Netflix now. I cannot encourage everyone enough to drop what you're doing and go watch it. David E. Talbert, it has been an absolute joy talking about this. I love the movie. I'm a big fan of yours. I will follow you wherever you go from here. My valley girl sister. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you, man. You have done such great work before this, but this is such a holiday gift and just such a gift to, to all of us. So thank you. Man. Thank you. Appreciate the love. And Nick, this has been great. And come back and co-host again. Happy to do it. Thank you, guys. Thanks for signing on. Yeah, man. Hollywood Unscripted was created by Kurt Co. Media. This special episode of the Stuck at Home series was hosted and produced by me, Jenny Curtis, with guest David E. Talbert, guest co-host Nick Walker, edited by Jay Whiting. The executive producer of Hollywood Unscripted is Stuart Halperin. The Hollywood Unscripted theme song is by Celeste and Eric Dick. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any special episodes of Hollywood Unscripted Stuck at Home. Stay safe and healthy, and thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind. Mm-hmm.